0: Let's get started. Dave Robinson here, and we're celebrating Bench Talk, The Week in Science, is now two years old. We broadcast our first show on August 6, 2018. I started off that episode with a story about the link between sports concussions, especially among football players, and brain damage. And then Ashley Best reported on the huge amount of viral DNA that appears to have worked its way into our genome, And then I finished that episode with a fascinating story, at least to me, about how ancient people might have carried sweet potatoes by boat between South America and the Pacific Islands. Now, on those first few shows, it was just Dr. Best and me reporting. But in September, Dr. Trent Garrison filed his first story with us. And by October, Professor J. Scott Miller had filed a report about geothermal energy And he's still giving the monthly astronomy talks on the show. Dr. Leslie Moise contributed her first science poem to Bench Talk back in February of 2019. And our newest contributor, John Dixon, he joined us just this summer. Now, in addition to these regular contributors, we've also broadcast single stories filed with us from colleagues here in Louisville, from Tennessee, and from as far away as Britain and France. We want to thank all of these scientists, teachers, and advocates for helping make science understandable, relevant, and interesting. Oh, and by the way, if you're a scientist or an engineer, a mathematician or a teacher, or anyone working in the STEM fields, and you'd like to contribute to the show, please let us know. My email address is drobinson2 at bellarman.edu. That's D-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N 2, the number 2, at B-E-L-L-A-R-M-I-N-E dot E-D-U. And I can set you up. And if you are friends or relatives of someone with a STEM background who you think would like to give a try at science communication, let us know. A retired person, for instance, or a graduate student, perhaps or someone who just has a science policy issue that they feel strongly about, just contact me at drobinson2 at bellarmin.edu. It's really easy to record your own story. You can even record it on your smartphone if you want to. We'll edit your piece before broadcasting to make it sound as good as possible. We're really looking to make this show as grassroots as possible. There must be some guerrilla science communicators out there. Science and the scientific way of thinking, it's important to all of us. It's a part of our everyday lives, whether we like it or not. And now that we're dealing with this pandemic, perhaps the world knows that better now than ever before. You literally can't live without science. I think astronomer Carl Sagan put it well. And by the way, Carl Sagan is one of the science communicators that inspired this show. Carl Sagan said, quote, Science is a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge. Its goal is to find out how the world works, to seek regularities there may be, to penetrate to the connection of things, from subnuclear particles, which may be the constituents of all matter, to living organisms, the human social community, and thence to the cosmos as a whole, unquote. Anyway, in that spirit, let's get going. First, we'll hear about the August night sky from J. Scott Miller, and then I'll tell you about some of the latest science news stories, like the International Microbiota Vault, or how stress makes our hair turn gray, and there's the dinosaur that took a bite out of the wrong squid. Just hang on.
1: Scott here. As August opens, I still need to wait until late for darkness to fall, generally about 9.30 or so. During weekdays and the normal workday, this can put a cramp on observing. Weekends can be different because I can at least sleep in a bit later in the morning after spending long hours under the warm, clear skies of August. Much of what is interesting in August skies this year is found in the southern skies. The moon is found over in a southeastern sky at the beginning of August, lying just south of Jupiter on the 1st and moving well past Saturn on the 2nd. As the moon is full on August 3rd, having it in this part of the sky means it will not be interfering much with seen constellations through most of the month. Jupiter and Saturn have been side by side through most of the summer. We have overtaken and passed both of these giant planets in our faster orbit around the sun, a point called opposition. From now through the end of the year, we should see them more and more around toward the west, first moving from southeast to south and then on over to the southwestern skies by December. Note, as these two slowly make their way over toward the western sky, you might also notice the gap between them slowly shrinking. Jupiter will overtake Saturn, forming a conjunction between these two when they will appear just next to each other around the middle of December, which should make for a pretty sight after sunset. Just to the right or west of Jupiter is the constellation Sagittarius. Sagittarius is pictured as a centaur, a mythological creature that is half human, half horse. This centaur is apparently armed with a bow and arrow, aimed at the heart of Scorpius the Scorpion, marked by the bright star Antares. As a star pattern, Sagittarius looks less like a centaur and more like a teapot. One can clearly make out four stars that form the pot itself, with a star west of the pot marking the end of the spout, while east of the pot are two more stars that can be imagined making the handle to pour tea with. And where is this tea being poured? Right on the tail of the scorpion. The brightest star in Scorpius is the star Antares. Its name means rival of Mars, for when Mars is among the stars of Scorpius, these two compete in brightness and redness. By 9.30 in the evening, it becomes easy to start to pick out this long, sprawling constellation. West of Antares, one can spot a group of four stars that make out a letter T on its side. Antares would be the base of that T. This would be the head and beginning of the pincer arms of the scorpion. South and east of Antares, one can see a group of stars that make the shape of a hook. This would be the rest of the body of the scorpion and its long, whip-like tail two stars close together at the end of this hook would be the stinger of that scorpion. In the area in front of the scorpion, one might imagine those stars as extending out to be the claws of the scorpion. In Greek mythology, this appears to be the case. To the Romans from which many of the constellations were named, the box of stars there is called Libra the Scales. Libra was seen by the ancient Romans as the scales of justice wielded by Virgo, constellation found west of Libra and closer to the western horizon. Libra is the only inanimate constellation found among those that mark the apparent path of the sun over the course of a year, the others being regular creatures like Scorpius or mythological creatures like Sagittarius the archer. One of the two things that I like to look for in summer skies can be found courtesy of the spout of the teapot asterism making up most of Sagittarius, and relates back to the hot tea I mentioned earlier coming from its spout. Steam rising up from the spout wafts up into the sky and high overhead in the form of the Milky Way. In my dark skies, the Milky Way is quite vivid. Fooled me, in fact, the other evening because of some clouds in the night sky. I thought it was just another drifting cloud. But whereas the other drifting clouds were doing that, drifting, it was clear this cloud wasn't. As I noted other star patterns as they popped in and out of the drifting clouds, it became apparent that the summer sky version of the Milky Way was making itself visible. The second thing I like to look for in August skies are shooting stars. As August opens, several minor showers are active, though past the date of their peak activity. These would be the Alpha Capricornids, the Delta Aquariids, and the Eta Aquariids. Sporadic at best, you might simply be surprised by meteors coming out of the southern sky direction. I caught one of these in late July while looking for Comet Neowise, almost as interesting to see as the comet was that night. But the anticipated meteor shower of August is known as the Perseid meteor shower. According to the website EarthSky.org, EarthSky is all one word for that URL, No matter where you live worldwide, the 2020 Perseid meteor shower will probably produce the greatest number of meteors on the mornings of August 11th, 12th, and 13th. On the peak mornings in 2020, the moon will be at or slightly past its last quarter phase, so moonlight might well mar this year's production. But the Perseids tend to be bright, and a good percentage of them should be able to overcome the moonlight. Who knows? you still might see up to 40 to 50 meteors per hour at the shower's peak. Perseid meteors have been streaking across our sky since around July 17th. We'll see Perseids for 10 days or so after the peak mornings of August 11th, 12th, and 13th, though at considerably reduced numbers. So, this is a broad date phenomenon with a specific night or range of nights when one might see many more meteors than any other in the range of dates. Often a good shower with hourly rates of 30 or so, this year the moon may be an issue during peak times in the early morning skies, since, as I said, it will be full on August 3rd. But with each passing night after that, the moon shows less and less of itself at later and later hours, so it shouldn't hinder viewing after midnight as much. Meteor showers are patience builders. First, one needs dark skies away from city lights if one wants to see the most possible. I get comfortable chairs to sit on, or even blankets to lie on, though sleep may overtake you if you're not careful in such a reclined position. The Perseids get their name because they seem to come from the direction of a constellation called Perseus, which rises after midnight in the northeastern sky. There may be some meteors seen before midnight, but the count increases as the night continues. Once comfortable, further patience building comes from the wait to see any meteors. I can scan the whole sky and generally not in the direction of Perseus itself. The meteors may have their path traced back to Perseus, but are seen well away from that constellation. With others accompanying me, watching the whole sky is easier, but it can be disappointing when they, and maybe not you, get to see one. Like constellation finding, this is an activity that only needs your eyes and a dark sight to view from. Friends or family make it for a fun activity and helps pass the time.
0: Hey, have you got a big wad of money you'd like to donate to a good cause? How about the Microbiota Vault? Now, you might have heard about the Global Seed Vault that's being maintained in a deep mountainous cavern on an island in frigid Norway halfway to the North Pole. The idea of the global seed vault is to collect every possible race, variety, and strain of seeds from every possible crop species around the world that they possibly can. They store it in this deep frozen vault so that in case of a global catastrophe, it could be a nuclear war, climate change, crop disease epidemics, or funding cuts, or plant extinction... The seed bank can act as the world's insurance policy. Actually, when I was a researcher living in the Yemen Arab Republic back in the late 1970s, I collected sorghum seeds that are now in the seed vault. The seed vault is meant to preserve all of that genetic variability so that farmers and crop breeders could still utilize it in the future. It's sort of like the Noah's Ark of crop-plant diversity, Well, now scientists in Switzerland want to do the same sort of thing with the human microbiome. Of course, the human microbiome is the collection of microscopic bacteria, fungi, protists, and viruses that live on or inside our bodies. But just like there are different strains of crops growing in different parts of the globe, the different parts of our body maintain different kinds of microorganisms. And each one of us has a different microbiome profile. Every single person is a potential treasure trove of germs, some of them good and some of them bad. Some of them live cooperatively with our other microbes and with our body, but others of them are living in us and on us competitively. And of course, some of them could be pathogenic, meaning they cause disease. And just like global plant diversity is constantly under threat of being lost due to climate change, disease, monoculture, our dietary preferences or agricultural preferences, human-related microorganisms are also under threat, but this time it's due to the use of antibiotics, diseases like obesity and inflammatory bowel disorders, pathogens, toxins, the consumption of processed foods, diets that are low in fiber, etc., they all threaten our diversity of microorganisms that live in our body. And there are other things that can cause a person to experience a decline in their microbiota. For instance, babies who are born by cesarean section tend to have reduced biodiversity in their microbiome compared to those born by vaginal birth moving from more wilder habitats like native savannas and jungles to the city. When they move to the city, a person's microbiome diversity decreases. Research has shown that people who live in more industrialized societies have less diverse microbiomes compared to indigenous people who are living in greater harmony with their natural environment. Gut diversity of people living in the United States, for instance, is about half of what it is in the isolated native tribes of South America. And before you go thinking that this is no big deal, go listen to our show of February 4th, 2019. There was a story on that episode about fecal transplantation. The idea of that is to transfer the microbes that live inside the body of a healthy person and placing that into the body of someone who's ill. Well, as gross as it sounds, one of the easiest ways to collect a whole lot of a person's microbiome is in their fecal material. Just check out our February 4, 2019 episode. It's on forwardradio.org, and then once you're there, go to the Bench Talk page. But fecal transplantation experiments have shown success in treating intestinal diseases like colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, and inflammatory bowel disease. But it's also been used to treat things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, and malnutrition. So, your microbiome is darn important, and you should treat it well. You can encourage a healthy microbiome by eating lots of natural foods, especially those made from plants. Get lots of fiber in your diet, and that all comes from plants. And staying away from processed foods and foods that contain a lot of artificial chemicals. That'll build your microbiome. Anyway, as our world gets more industrialized and urbanized, there's probably going to be a decline in the variety of microorganisms that inhabit our species. The idea of the microbiome vault, then, would be for scientists to collect microbiomes from individuals living all around the world now before we lose all that biodiversity. People living in different places would have different species and different strains of bacteria, fungi, and viruses living in their bodies. If industrialization reduces the number and diversity of those microbe species, we need to collect them now before living in the modern world kills them. Since it's thought that indigenous peoples living in lower-income areas generally maintain a greater amount of biological diversity in their microbiome, there'd probably be a lot of emphasis on making collections in third world countries. And of course, this raises some ethical questions. Since the Swiss effort on this project is being led by private companies, is there a possibility that an unsuspecting donor might be contributing a strain of bacteria that could eventually provide a profit to a private entity someday, like a pharmaceutical company? As I mentioned before, there's already an accepted medical procedure called fecal microbiota transplantation that's used to treat disease. There's also a technique that pregnant women sometimes use. It's called vaginal seeding. And the point of that is to enhance a newborn's microbiome if the delivery is by C-section. And who hasn't heard of probiotics being sold in yogurt So there's profit to be had from people's microbiomes, perhaps. And what about the fact that our body's internal microbiome is expelled and flushed down the toilet every day? Who owns that? Is a person's microbiome confidential information? Since our microbiome strongly influences our health, the species profile of a person's microbiome could be considered a reflection of their diet, their health status, their age, and the environment and people that they associate with. Because we're sharing our microbiome with people all the time, potentially every time you hug, kiss, or touch. What does your microbiome say about you, figuratively speaking, and how confidential should that information be? But I'm not poo-pooing the idea of a global microbiome fault. Every year that it's not done, we could be losing medically important microbial species that our ancestors gathered thousands of years ago. And you know it's pretty easy to do, just collect people's feces and freeze it. So, who knows? Maybe you can't afford to donate money to the International Microbiome Vault Project, but you might be able to make a different kind of donation someday. Hey,
1: why does our hair
0: turn gray? Of course, age has something to do with graying hair, but stress probably has something to do with it, too. Surely you've noticed how quickly U.S. presidents turn gray during their time in the White House, as as long as they don't dye their hair, that is. Well, it turns out scientists might have figured out how stress speeds up the rate that our hair turns gray. Researchers did experiments to study the graying process in laboratory mice. Now, they achieved stress by injecting the mice with a compound related to capsaicin, the ingredient in chili peppers that make them taste hot. And I know the idea of injecting laboratory mice with a chemical like that surely does sound harsh, but it was done following standard ethical guidelines for doing experiments with laboratory animals. But what happened to the mice when they were stressed out by this treatment? Within five days of injection, the mice's hair turned white. Now, it's the melanocyte stem cells in hair follicles that typically produce the pigments that give our hair their natural color. But in the follicles of the stressed mice, the melanocytes didn't produce that pigment. The researchers concluded that the stress of the capsaicin injection triggered the mouse's sympathetic nervous system to produce the neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. The sympathetic nervous system is the automatic part of our nervous system. It's involuntary. Sometimes it's called the fight-or-flight response. The extra norepinephrine that the body makes due to stress causes the hair follicle melanocytes to synthesize the pigment cells at even a faster rate It produces the pigment cells so quickly that the stem cells appear to run out of steam. Once the melanocyte stem cells are used up, they can't produce that natural color anymore. The hair first appears gray, and then it turns white. Now, researchers don't know whether this is the same mechanism that causes our hair to turn gray just due to aging. That could be the same mechanism, but it could be a different mechanism, too. But at least now they think they found a cellular and biochemical explanation for that long-perceived link between stress and the grain of hair. It's got something to do with the neurotransmitter called norepinephrine and how that drives the stem cells in our hair follicles to go into high gear and then they just wear out and stop making the natural hair pigment altogether. Just one more reason to keep our stress levels as low as possible, I guess. Hey, did you hear the story about the fossilized squid that was discovered recently in Germany that appears to have a dinosaur tooth embedded in it? It's not the beginning of a joke. It's a research finding. Now, squids are a type of cephalopod. The octopus is another example of a cephalopod. Squid and octopi have a prominent head and a set of tentacles and are only found in marine environments. And this particular squid is fossilized. It was about a foot long when it was alive, and it was of a species that is now long extinct. In fact, it's believed that the squid lived 150 million years ago, during the Cretaceous period, when there were also a lot of dinosaurs roaming the planet. Now, the dinosaur tooth that they found embedded in this squid fossil is believed to be from a pterosaur. That's spelled P-T-E-R-O-S-A-U-R. In Greek, pterosaur means flying lizard, and it is one of the earliest known flying vertebrate animals. Technically, this dinosaur was a reptile. It didn't have any feathers. Its wings were formed by a membrane of skin and muscle stretched from their ankle all the way up to their fingers. Scientists have discovered many different species of pterosaurs, ranging from 10 inches in length to 36 feet. And they do indeed have teeth. Now, paleontologists have examined the stomachs of these flying reptiles, these pterosaurs. And they have found fish scales and fish bones in them, so they did appear to hunt fish. But this is the first sign that they also ate squid. But in this case, it's not that they found the squid inside of a fossilized pterosaur. Instead, they found a pterosaur tooth inside a fossilized squid. So maybe the dinosaur tried to grab the squid. A struggle ensued, and maybe the squid managed to escape but with one of those dinosaur's teeth embedded in it. You might think that a fight between a squid and a dinosaur would be kind of one-sided and that the squid would lose, but no one actually knows who lost this fight, or maybe it was even a stalemate. That squid could have put up a pretty good fight. Squids have two tentacles, but they have eight arms and a beak that they use for hunting and chewing other marine animals. And squids are very good at camouflaging themselves. They're very rapid swimmers. They have excellent vision. And they're thought to be one of the most intelligent invertebrate animals known on Earth. So this pterosaur may have really met its match in picking on this particular squid. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 PM, that's Eastern Time 11.30 AM every Tuesday and 7.30 AM every Wednesday Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM Your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.